Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Bill Coletti is a special guest on today's show. He's a crisis communications and reputation management expert with more than 25 years experience in managing high stake crises. He's also the author of Critical Moments, the new mindset of reputation management. But before we get a chance to speak with Bill, it's a leadership hacking news. Zoom office parties that employees resorted to during the pandemic are no longer fit for purpose and neither are the in-person team-building exercises that workers took place before the pandemic, according to research from the University of Sydney in Australia. In a new paper, the university updates its study, originally released in 2009, which argues it's more important for leaders to focus on team-building efforts on relationships where the parties are not very close, versus those that are already close and to bring them closer still. In a statement, lead researcher Dr. Peter Matus says almost every day at work workers are subjected to interventions that are implicitly or explicitly designed to change our networks of working relationships. Teams are formed, merged, restructured and staff are reallocated to office spaces when they're redesigned and we are expected to participate in drinks after work and team building sessions readily. All this work with the aim of improving workplace effectiveness, efficiency, collaboration and cohesion but does any of this really work? Well, in the research, his colleague, Associate Professor Julian Polak, points out, among the participants that we interviewed, some were really against team-building exercises because they felt they were implicit or compulsory and didn't welcome the management's interest in their lives beyond their direct work performance. We found that many people don't want to be forced into having or making friends or drinks, especially on top of their busy lives. And of course, many are already introverted, and this just does not work. Polak notes, these activities often feel mandatory. People feel that management is being too noisy or trying to control their lives too much. When it comes to team building in Zoom and any other online or virtual experience, some research completed by the Institute in Leadership and Management by Jay Luddit says, we've learned from the changing environment inflicted by the pandemic that there is no one size that fits all. Employers offering flexibility around home working together with long hours Alongside other people's commitments and founding, unsurprisingly, people found initial favour with social interactions, but as time's gone on, I've started to really push against it. Socialising works best when organic and when it's voluntary, so allow people to choose when they engage. In doing so, you'll naturally be more fulfilling around creating a team environment. So their leadership lens here is how much time do we really spend understanding the internalization and the behaviors of our team so that we can create the appropriate opportunity for socializing and networking. And I wonder if you just took a look around your team and the people that you work alongside now, 
how many of those Zoom pub quizzes and drink sessions are still going on today? I suspect there are a lot fewer than they were six months ago. And therefore, what could be the next way that we gather in the virtual world to celebrate? That's been the Leash of Hacking News. If you have any insights, information, please get in touch. Joining me on today's show is Bill Coletti. Bill is the CEO of Kithco. He's the best-selling author of Critical Moments, the new mindset of reputation management. He's a C-suite advisor and a strategist. Bill, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Steve, I'm excited to be here and looking forward to a great conversation. Me too. Before we get into that conversation, though, it might be really helpful for our listeners to just get a sense of who you are, how you've arrived at running Kith. Uh, that's awesome. So, um, I started my career, and so what we do is we do crisis communications and reputation management for corporations and, and leaders. And I started my career in politics. I ran political campaigns, did my first local government race, state senate race uh, when I was a senior in high school, and then continued to be involved in politics through college and then graduated on doing statewide campaigns and progressively larger races and then took a five-year break and went to Eastern Europe and lived in Bulgaria, um, again, doing politics in, in Romania and Albania and a little bit in Bulgaria, uh, and then came home in 2000 back to the United States and ran a United States Senate campaign. And so taking the skill sets of politics, which is, as you know, in politics, it's very much crisis management. You're just cr- trying to create one more crisis for the other guys that, than you have yourselves, or you're off, often trying to solve crises or fix problems in a campaign, is went and did that and applied those skill sets to a corporate context. And so since around 2000, I've been doing this in a, in a corporate context of working with corporations as they find themselves, their strategy misaligned with public's expectation. So that's where we spend all of our time now. So I guess politics was an incredible foundation for you to get those skills at not only understanding and responding to crisis, but as you rightly said, creating crisis for your opponents. What was maybe the the one kind of standout moment for you in your political career where you could say, right, yeah, that's definitely going to work in corporate world? You know, so I think it is understanding attention span understanding what motivates people and really understanding the limitations of your side. And so I think great campaigns really understand who they are and what they stand for. Great candidates uh, understand who they are and what they stand for. And what we've seen with corporations is that there's a key differentiator in crisis response between good and great and good and great. The difference is speed. But the way you get fast is by understanding your mission and values, understanding what you stand for. And then there's elements of chain of command. So those two things equal speed. And so what we found with candidates is those that knew what they stood for, didn't live in the middle of the road, took a, took a position, they did better than candidates that tried to be all things to all people. And that's similar in a corporate context, not exactly universal, but similar in a corporate context. There's some differences that we can unpack if you want to talk about. But I think the the biggest thing is knowing who you are, what you stand for and what you can. Can you actually can you walk the walk and not just talk it? Yeah, sneak. And I guess the whole 12 months that we've been in so far it has been a crisis for most organizations. What has the pandemic brought about for you to deal with in the work that you now do with Kith? Yeah, so two two key insights. One is 
ABC, always be communicating. Companies, it's not, a, it's not an epiphany, but I think it became much more understandable and relatable that companies always have to be communicating in particular to their employees. And that's the second key insight that we picked up in this whole COVID experience is that leaders, whether it be the CEO or a departmental leader or a political leader, they have to be a source of truth because there are so many different sources of truth around COVID-19 is that the leader of your company has to be a communicator and they have to drive that first insight of always be communicating. So ABC, always be communicating. And then the second part is that leaders, CEOs, the business leaders have to be the, the primary spokesperson uh, communicating what the path forward is and trying to be a source of truth. It's definitely not time for abdication at this point, is it? Not at all. Now, now is the time. And that's been a real epiphany. A lot of companies say, well, this reputation stuff, that's not, I don't really need to do that. I just serve my customers, serve my employees. But the public's expectations running in parallel with COVID. We, so in the United States and, of course, globally, there are these issues related to so, social justice, these issues related to where populations, groups of people are demanding um, corporations to take a stand. Those two things, COVID and social justice, public public um, expectation, have collided. So, no, there's no room for abdication. You, even if you're a small B2B lumber company, you have to have a position because your customers and then your customers' customers really demand you to have a position. I love the notion, by the way, of ABC always be communicating, and I totally get that. And it's something that's been really core to my heart. But I just wondered from your perspective, is there a danger in a crisis that's been as long as the pandemic has been that you can over-communicate? So there's the possibility of that. I, I don't, I think it's a really, really high bar. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it, it has to do with tone as much as volume of how much of it that you do. Um, I think one of the great struggles that our clients have and that we have to work with them on one is, is, well, I've already said that. Why do I need to say it again? Or, or I don't, I don't know when this is going to be over and I don't know when we're going to be back in the office. And I don't know when we're going to have a vaccination or I don't know what the government's going to do next is the, un, is the, is, is getting comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. That's been a great challenge for companies to figure out and for individual leaders, you know, a, I've already told everybody that and then B, I don't know what I'm going to tell them. It's okay. It is okay to say, we don't know. But our best judgment or our best, here's what we're thinking about, that's really, really good enough to, to be able to be able to, to communicate in that philosophy of always being It's filling the gaps that people have the problem with. If they understand that you genuinely don't know what your strategy is or you genuinely don't know what your next steps are, that's easier to deal with than them perceiving that you have got insight, but you're just holding it back, right? Absolutely. And so back to that point I made about the key differentiator between good and great crisis response is speed. The, the, the reason you're in the race, the reason that you need speed is you've got to fill the vacuum. If you don't fill the vacuum, somebody will fill it for you. Someone will tell your story for you, whether that be, you know, a customer service rep that's all that's upset and tells it to somebody on the phone or internally at standing at the water cooler or on a Zoom call with your colleagues, someone will tell that story if you don't fill in that breach. And so you have to be conscious of that. The best remedy is always be communicating. I think the bar, as to your previous question, is really high 
Yeah. Or whether you can do that too much. Awesome. Now you've written a best-selling book, Critical Moments, The New Mindset of Reputation Management. What was the inspiration for that? Yeah, it's a, it's a neat, neat story. So I was with, I was in New York um, with a client, I mean, a, a remarkably talented female CEO. And she, and she had hired us and we were engaged in this crisis challenge. It was about a, ultimately turned to be about a seven to 10 day challenge, kind of where they were in the headlines, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, related to some operational challenges that they had had. And it was this, it was this slow burn, slow, un, uh, slowly unfolding challenge. And during the course of the conversation, she and I had developed a friendship and a, a very consultative relationship. And I kept talking about this notion of reputation and reputation management. Her focus, rightly so, and my focus was on the crisis, the moment. How do we get ourselves back to normal, back to our position that we were before all the reporters started, started calling us? But I transitioned the conversation to once we get through this, we're going to need to rebuild our reputation. And so as an earnest consultant, I was full of jargon and full of, you know, fluff and utter, as I like to call it. And, and, and she challenged me and she said, Bill, I think I understand what you need, but I need a practical understanding of what you mean about reputation management, similar to the way I understand marketing, which is related to the, uh, the four P's of marketing, price, product, place, promotion. If you're kind of an old school marketer, you might be familiar with the four P's, price, product, place, promotion. It's the foundational underpinning of everything we know about the modern marketing mix. And we can quibble of whether digital and social media have changed that. I don't don't believe that it is. Those four fundamentals are incredibly durable. So her comment was me, was Bill, I need to understand what you mean by reputation with a model like that. So it was with that challenge that I flew home and on a cocktail napkin, I said, well, what do I mean by reputation management? Fortunately, I had a three-hour flight, and then that let me build out what ultimately became the the four A's of reputation management. It sort of begins with this notion of awareness, goes to assessment, authority, and then ultimately action. And what the marketing mix did, the four P's did for corporations, is it allowed leaders to assign responsibility and budget to four distinct disciplines, price, product, inflation, promotion. The four A's does the same thing when it comes to reputation management. It creates an organizational framework so that leaders can actually not just do good things and hope that it, that it impacts their reputation, but actually articulating a quantifiable budget-based rational model for how to grow your reputation. So the motivation was this remarkably challenging in a positive way CEO that that needed me to articulate reputation in a new way. And that's where the four A's and that's where the book ultimately came from. It's a really neat fit because marketing and reputation are very closely aligned, aren't they? What's your kind of take on how aligned they are? Yeah, it's interesting. So I I use the terminology um, that a company owns its brand, but the public owns its reputation. Yeah. And so Marketing is all about the brand. It's all about protecting the brand, growing the brand, changing the customer experience, changing and drawing, making yourself more attractional so that people will swipe their credit card or write a check or do a purchase order, whatever the case may be. I think that reputation is formed by certainly customers, 
but there are non-customers that have a perception and reputation. So in the United States, we've got British Petroleum, BP. And if you live in the Gulf Coast of the United States, while I may not be a customer of a BP gas station, because it's just not convenient for me, it's not on my way home or to and from the office, but I certainly have a perception about BP and I, that is me articulating a position and articulating a, a, a belief around their reputation. Similar for Boeing. I am not going to be, and neither, neither are you, Steve, going to buy a Boeing jet engine. That's just not on our purchase list. But we have a belief and a perception around Boeing equipment because of what we've seen or heard in the media and understand that. So brand is driven for check writers, people that are going to actually purchase it. That's the domain of marketers. And I believe communications and the folks that think about reputation, that's where they live. They live in that notion of creating and growing a reputation long-term. So I think there's a distinction because a company can control its brand, but it's the public that owns its reputation. Yeah, it's a great reframe. Love it. So in the book, you talk about the four A's of reputation management. might be useful just to spin through the four A's and give our listeners a little bit of a nudge to in this A, this is maybe what I'd think about. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, so the, the, the model of these, of these basic four A's, really critical mindset is what I'm trying to articulate. So the first one is awareness. And so my, my work is, also, is often for corporations, but it's also for individuals. And so it fits into both a human dynamic as well as to a corporate dynamic standpoint. So the first thing is awareness. So who are we? What do we stand for? What is the aspiration that we have for our reputation. So it's really around awareness and understanding of self, self meaning in the context of a corporation. How do we understand that? Second is assessment. Once I know who we are, when we're talking to and about ourselves, that's as, as, is awareness. Assessment is to go ask others. Let's go ask our stakeholders. Let's go ask certainly our customers. Let's ask our regulators. Let's ask other people, our neighbors. And so I talk about it in, in a context of communities, customers, and critics. So let's actually go do assessment, which is good old-fashioned survey research or some form of public opinion research. Where do we stand? Here's what we think, which is awareness. Assessment is where we actually validate that with the public. We then move to authority. And authority is the element of where you get buy-in from your senior leadership team, where you're sharing the insight, and that you actually have the ability to drive change, but you need to make sure that your leadership is bought in understands the value of reputation, understands the economics of reputation, and there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done with your leadership team, with the understanding of awareness, the understanding of assessment that leads to authority. The cover of the book then is, this is all portrayed as a pyramid. At the top of that third level, which is authority, there's a solid blue line. And that solid blue line is a consultant or well-intentioned employee barrier. Because the last step, the last A is action, is that too often companies will ping pong around and decide to be overly focused on the cause celeb, the issue of the day, whether it be LBGTQ issues, Black Lives Matter, all critically important topics, whether they're talking about global uh, climate change, whatever these issues are. But unless an organization is done, is, has, is aware 
done some assessment, done some authority. You can't jump to action unless you've done that work. So that's why there's a blue line. So those are the four elements. Action is actually the manifesting and, and doing reputational boosting efforts, campaigns, to actually grow your reputation for the long term. But you can't do it just like you can't. I, when I lived in Bulgaria, I had a buddy of mine that was a Marine. And on Thursday night before a Saturday morning marathon, he said, well, ah, heck, I can go do that. He failed miserably in running a marathon and jumping into action because he hadn't, wasn't very self-aware. He hadn't really assessed his body and his wife really didn't give him permission to spend any time training over the next 48 hours. So that action kind of failed. I love that model on the basis that as you've already articulated. So if you're an individual thinking about your reputation, you can apply it. If you're running a team, if you're running a project or running an organization, those things still apply. Yeah, absolutely. And that's wonderful the way you say it that way, because as a firm, that's who we serve. So we, we serve individuals with a training product that we call KIF Academy, which is all about the mindset and behavior of superior communicators. What do superior communicators do? We work with teams on simulations. How do you actually simulate these crises? How do you think about what could or couldn't happen and exercise your team? We work with the organization which is the bigger comprehensive transformation reputation work that we do. And then we serve um, the, the situation, which is crisis response, where we come running uh, and, and actually do crisis response. So, yeah, so the four A's are very durable in both the human context, the team context, as well as organizational. Now, you've become renowned for helping folk get through crisis and deal with it and manage crisis. And I guess there have been lots of lessons to be learned from the pandemic in the last 12 months. But typically as a leader, what would be a response you would see more often from a leader in a crisis? You know, I think head in the sand, this will blow over. There is a very um, poor assessment of smoke versus fire People, people misinterpreting something as smoke when it really is fire or something that's fire, but it's really just smoke. There's also this notion that, you know, that's all just this social media chatter. This is really not that important. My customers, my key stakeholders don't really, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, so there's an underappreciation and then there's an overappreciation. I think the key thing of how leaders respond is a misunderstanding of this, 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 this evaluation of smoke versus fire. That's, that's the key miss that I see over and over again. Yeah. And if you think about there's likely to be crisis in every organization, mm -hmm. whether it be small or large scale crisis to deal with. And it's the old adage of it's not about the crisis. It's how you respond, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I like to talk about crises. You know, there are normal operational business challenges that impact organizations that are not crises. Those are just things we got to manage through. You know, I mean, we just have to manage through that event. I think this notion of crisis is something that really distracts me or takes me off my strategy that, mm -hmm. because of the public's expectations, what the public thinks I should be doing, even though they've never paid attention to before, but they're paying attention now. That's what a crisis is. That's really sort of sets the stage for this notion what i talk about critical moments that, that that's the real real distinction uh that, that that organizations need to think about is that the comings and goings of business that's why we're all in business we have we just got to keep grinding and keep doing the work that we do but something that takes us away from our strategy and misaligns us with what the public expect us to do that's the greater challenge 
So here's a, a little bit of side question for you, Bill, that's kind of just sprung to my thinking as we've been talking. Is there a magic source to stop or prevent crisis happening in the first place? I don't think there's one thing. I think there's a pretty, some pretty well-established recipes to minimize the threat. Now, things happen all the time. And so you can't manage against that. I think a global pandemic is one that we would have never mitigated against. We could have prepared for it better, but we could have never mitigated. So I don't think you can ever be bulletproof on this stuff or crisis proof, but I think you can be crisis ready. And there are three simple things that I, that I advise to clients to do that. One is, is simplest basic form is at your weekly, monthly, quarterly staff meeting, whenever you get your team together. Pull out the major newspaper of your choice, national or international newspaper, and say, pull out a headline and say, what if this had happened to us? What would we do? How would we respond? The simple act of being aware of response, the simple act of asking questions about how would we respond, it's it's a basic form of simulation. That's one of the best things that an organization could do. The second thing is actually invest in simulations, actually invest in training and testing and exercising your machine. How do we respond? What are our mission and values? What's the chain of command? Really exercising that with a various group of stakeholders within your organization. And then thirdly, most big sophisticated organizations have a risk management function. In most large multinational corporations, the risk management function is about what insurance do we need to buy in order to transfer risk so that we don't have to pay for an exposure, therefore we have insurance. There is great thinking that lives within the risk management organization, particularly for big global corporations, and as well as most national corporations have risk managers, thinking and or certainly leveraging the thinking of those risk managers do simple simulations, do comprehensive simulations, but really leveraging the thinking of risk managers um, is really just those are three very concrete things that, that organizations can do. Again, the goal is not to become crisis proof. It's to become have, have fewer of them, but also be more crisis ready. I guess another way of putting it is strategic thinking, isn't it? Yeah, it is in its simple in its simplest form, um, and and we need to do it. You know, you need to do it in a thoughtful, realistic way because, as you know, if you strategic thinking begets strategic planning, mm. and and you cannot plan for every possible permutation, you're you're you need to think in a smart way. You need to use your imagination, but you got to be careful, and that's where risk risk management and risk planning loses credibility when you start chasing every crazy permutation. And so what we've already experienced is that everybody is writing pandemic plans. And I don't know about you. I don't know if we're going to have to deal with a pandemic. We might in three years, five years, 50 years, who knows? We might, but there's plenty of other risks that we could be thinking about. And that's why I don't really over-index on the risk. I over-index on the response and how does an organization get ready to respond. I'm with you on that one for sure. Yeah. So this part of the show is where I get to hack into your leadership mind and thinking about all of the great teams and experiences and folk that you've worked with and led. And the first place I'd like for us to go is for me to hack into your mind and look at your top three leadership hacks. What would they be? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I try to be really, really conscious about clarity of communication as a leader. What is my vision and how do I articulate that? And I use a tool um, what's called an impact filter. And an impact filter is where I take 
the actual time. Let's say I want to plan a webinar, I want to plan a conference, or something like that. Some sort of some sort of external external vision. Write a next book, whatever the case may be. Is that I go through this effort of using what's called an impact filter to articulate what are the key characteristics, what's the best thing that could happen, what's the worst thing that could happen, um, what does success criteria look like, and that then forces me to write it down. So I think pen and paper is one of the best leadership hacks is write down my vision and not just sort of pop it off because I've got sufficient throw weight in my organization that people will listen to what I say. But when I take the time to write it down, it's a lot more clear. So that's that's number one, this usage of, of an impact filter. Um, re- related to that is, is, is trying to speak clearly and don't lead by empowerment, but lead by agreement is that I really want folks to agree that what we're talking about or what I request or what we're doing, everyone to agree that's the right thing to do uh, and really focus on this notion of, of leadership agreement. And the last thing I do that's a leadership hack for me is being very, very intentional about protecting my own personal space and my own personal time because as an entrepreneur and as a leader of my own firm, having time and space to think about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we're going to do next is a really wonderful, wonderful way for me to serve my team. And then if I marry that up with clarity using these impact filters, those are three things that I do that try to sort of help me lead the organization that I run. I love those. And most entrepreneurs also suffer with that last one where they you know, try to create that deliberate space, but often get it smudged between work and personal space. Yeah, very, very sad but true. Sad but true. We all we all validate ourselves by how busy, busy, busy we are. Yeah, and and it's just I've got an entrepreneur that I fly alongside of, completely different. He's in the real estate industry, but we're very close. And I just watch him, and it's 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 exhausting for me simply to observe him. I have nothing to do with his business, um, but it is exhausting for me to observe him. And, and I and I think he could be so much stronger if he took those moments to pause. Mm, Sure. The next part of the show we affectionately call Hack to Attack. So this is where something in your life or your work hasn't worked out particularly well. It might have been an experience that had gone completely south for you. But as a result of that experience, it's now a positive in your life or your work. What would be your hack to attack? Yeah, such an amazing question. And, and, and if you don't mind, I actually feel compelled to be very personal about this. And so if you're comfy with that, we'd be absolutely delighted. Yeah, I, uh, I went through a divorce um, and it was a very challenging moment. And I was working at a global public public relations firm and we had a, had a big fancy title, a global practice leader and got caught really short of not paying a lot of attention to my family, not paying a lot of attention to my, uh, the needs of my, of my kids. And so that car accident, if you will, or whatever, slamming into a wall that that moment created really forced me to refocus on things that really mattered. And, and I was caught. And then it led me to this amazing, amazing relationship that I have with uh, my, my wife now, Debbie, who is just a, a, a such an enriching treasure. So if I had not gone through that journey, I would not as be close and connected as I was to my kids. I would not have gone on an entrepreneurial journey. And then I wouldn't have found my, my wife, Debbie, um, and, and fallen in love and found an appreciation in such a different way. So that's a tragedy that lots of people go through. 
you can choose to make something good out of it. And I'm, and I'm very, very appreciative of all of the characters in that play. Some are villains and some are heroes, but I'm so appreciative of all the characters in that play because it, it let me stand here with you to talk about an entrepreneurial journey, which is very exciting, but more importantly, as a better husband and a better father. And I love the fact that you're comfortable in sharing it as well. So kudos to you for doing so. And thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And of course, any separation, any relationship breakdown, that's a crisis. And I suspect it gave you also some additional foundations you're pulling on unconsciously. Absolutely. And, and, and I've tried to be intentionally conscious about that because you're absolutely right. Mm. And and it is all about the, one of the key, key learnings from that for me is I still had I still had a career. I still had a job. I still had clients. I still had responsibility, um, you know, to my parents, which I was responsible for their caregiving at the time is that it, I really learned compartmentalization. And, and when you realize the leaders that we work with, that I work with, that find themselves in a crisis, it's typically the worst day of their professional career. And they have to be really good at compartmentalizing because they've got, their own personal paranoia about how's this going to impact them and their career? How's it going to impact their company that they lead or, or, or responsible for? And then they've got whatever is going on at home or whatever's going on where else in their life. So this gave me a greater appreciation for compartmentalization and a greater appreciation for the multifaceted components of crisis uh, that organizations need to go through. Awesome lesson. Thanks for sharing. So last thing we want to do with you is give you a chance to do a bit of time travel, bump into Bill at 21, and you get to give him some advice. So what would your advice to Bill at 21 be? Be an entrepreneur earlier. Um, I, you, were, you were very generous and shared some of these questions in advance, so I actually thought about this one. Um, I just think the journey that I've been on the past six years as an entrepreneur and, and running my own firm um, has been so enriching to me. And it was something that I was conscious of in my 20s and 30s and 40s. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That's not really for me. But I would have, I would have explored it. And my, neither my, my parents were, were uh, overly entrepreneurial. Um, but I think that journey for me has been the most transformational thing in my life. Um, and it's transformed so many things positively in my life that I wish I had done it earlier. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. So folk are probably going to wonder, how do we get to understand a little bit more about what Kith do? How can I find a copy of Bill's book? Where's a good place for us to send them when we're done? Yeah. So I try to, I'm, I'm, the basic one is our website. It's just Kith, K-I-T-H dot C-O. Um, Kith is our, is, our, is our corporate website. B Coletti on Twitter, Bill Coletti on LinkedIn, that's C-O-L-E-T-T-I. And when you get to our website, um, there'll actually be a landing page, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, just a, a quick summary of some of the things that we talked about here that, that people want to share. Um, and so we'll, we'll just do the we'll, – we'll have a link down in the show notes, but it'll be just at our, at our website um, and, and for the people to understand what we talked about here, and I'll be able to share that. So um, I'm, I'm pretty old school. Just good old-fashioned email off the website works. LinkedIn works. I try to, and like I said, be pretty active on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, those show notes will be all over our social media and our website too, Bill. So we'll make sure that we help connect with people who want to spend some more time listening and working with you. 
That's awesome. Thank you very much. It's thank you for me, actually, uh, for you taking time out of your busy schedule and being with us and sharing some of your stories. It's been really lovely talking with you. And thank you for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast, Bill. Well, it is my pleasure to be here, Steve. Thank you for what you do. You, you share tremendous content that's so valuable to people. So thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.